1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll hear from Zach Elliott, author of Now I See An Invitation to Life to the Full. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour of today's program. We'll also talk about the fact that top medical schools are weeding out. Um candidates based on their ideology rather than their capability. We'll tell you more about that. And also, Rainbow Fentanyl is uh, posing a real threat, particularly to young people. We'll tell you more about the warning that is going out all across the country. Well, a Florida federal judge today didn't immediately rule on a request from the former president, Donald Trump, for a special master to review documents seized from the home of the former president last month by the FBI for executive privilege. Well, after 1 p.m. Eastern Time, the hearing... Uh, Judge Aileen Cannon said that she will issue a written ruling on the president's uh, request, which is opposed by the Department of Justice in due course. So no timeline there. The hearing is the latest chapter in the battle over a closely watched Justice Department investigation into whether the former president illegally possessed classified national security materials at his Mar-a-Lago estate. The FBI raided the president's property as part of the investigation early last month. Well, Trump's lawyer, Jim Trustee, during the hearing slammed the Department of Justice for allegedly grasping at anything to prosecute Donald Trump. He said the FBI could have taken an overdue library book and it would have suddenly turned into a criminal investigation. He went on to note a broader concern for the institution of the presidency itself after the unprecedented raid. The department of Justice attorney Jay Bratt, meanwhile, argued that the former president no longer has the same legal privileges to classify documents as when he was in office. He's no longer the president. And because he is not, he was unlawful uh, in possession of these items, uh, he said, of the documents the department took from the president's home. Justice Department lawyers also argue that a special master is simply not necessary and said it would delay the investigation into Trump. Well, the judge, meanwhile, seemed pretty skeptical of the government's arguments at times. So this might have been something of an encouragement for the Trump side of the equation. What is the harm in appointing a special master, she said during the hearing? What is your articulation of harm other than the general concern that it would delay a criminal investigation? Well, she also floated the idea of letting the director of national intelligence review of the uh, documents continue while halting the uh, criminal investigation for a time and letting a special master review the materials. Trump's team and the Department of Justice also disagreed during the hearing about the gravity of national security documents being stored at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, we need to take a deep breath. These are presidential records in the hands of the 45th president at a place which was used frequently for work during his presidency, his attorney said. The Department of Justice prosecutor, meanwhile, said some of these records included the most highly classified records in the U.S. There was no place at that property, referring to Mar-a-Lago, that was authorized for those records, end quote. Well, Trump's lawyers also took a moment to address a photo included in the government brief on Wednesday of several folders of classified documents strewn on the floor. Trustee said it was perfectly staged and a press release within their motion. Interestingly enough, the FBI has been um, leaking documents and photos throughout this whole affair, while at the same time suggesting that it really should not, the affidavit shouldn't be redacted because this is an ongoing investigation and really should be kept uh, private. Um, However, one of the images was of these documents on the floor, and I watched CNN, MSNBC, and several other of the news outlets suggest how carelessly and how cavalierly the president Handled these uh, these documents strewn out on the floor. Well, they were put there by the FBI for the sake of the photographs, so they have been used for the intended purpose. And uh, it just raises questions about the FBI and the Department of Justice and whether or not this is an impartial, apolitical investigation. Well, Cannon, in an order on Saturday, announced her preliminary intent to appoint a special master. But she allowed for both sides to submit briefs, making their cases this week and set Thursday's hearing for debate on the matter. That's what took place earlier today. It's not likely that a special master would begin sorting through the documents immediately if the judge does decide to appoint, to appoint one. In uh, briefs this week, lawyers for the Justice Department and the uh, Trump team discussed submitting a joint list of proposed candidates for a special master potentially next week. They also said such a person should possess a top-secret SCI security clearance. The government initiated the raid on Trump's estate earlier this month in response to what it believed to be a violation of federal laws, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information, concealment, removal, or mutilation, and destruction, alteration, or falsification of records in federal investigations. So it continues, and it's not yet clear when the judge will make a determination on whether or not a special master will be appointed. Well, President Joe Biden will sound an alarm tonight about what he views as extremist threats to American democracy from the restive forces of uh, Trumpism aiming to reframe the November elections as part of an unceasing battle for the soul of the nation. I mean, it's pretty presumptuous that you're battling for the soul of the nation, as if the president, whoever occupies the Oval Office, is some sort of a messiah. But nearly two years after he defeated Donald Trump, it's a reprise of Biden uh, 2020 campaign theme, casting the midterm election stakes in a dire term as uh, Those that sent him to the Oval Office, his primetime speech at Independence Hall in Philadelphia will lay out what he sees as the risks from those he has dubbed ultra MAGA Republicans. Keeping in mind, MAGA represents make America great again to the nation's system of government, its standing abroad and its citizens way of life. Now, he's been in office for two years. Surely uh, there's enough to reflect back on and uh, uh, forward to uh, to leave uh, Trump and his ilk out. But the prospect that the former president will run again makes this much more of a political event than a statesman addressing the nation to console in the middle of high inflation, violence and a number of other uh, issues. Will the explicit effort by the president to marginalize Trump and his make America great again adherence? Marks a pretty sharp turn for the president, who preached his desire to bring about national unity in his inaugural address. White House officials said it reflects his mounting concern about Trump conservatives, ideological proposals and the 2020 election denialism. Now, interestingly enough, throughout the four years of Donald Trump's presidency, Democrats and mainstream media threw their heads back and howled that uh, he was not legitimately (laughs) elected And somehow it's more important now that there's another cadre that suggests that this president was not elected. Al Gore, when George W. Bush became president, there was a hue and cry that he wasn't uh, lawfully elected. So this is nothing new. Um, but one would hope we would look forward and that the president would have something constructive and meaningful to say. And who knows, he might. But according to what's been released so far, it looks like it will be much of the same of what we've heard over the last couple of days. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in the second hour, Jack, rather, Zach Elliott. Now I see an invitation to life to the full. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you know that red wave that was supposed to be coming in November? Well, it's far from guaranteed. Democrats have scored some victories in recent weeks, even if those victories are policies that come at the expense of taxpayers. The media will uh, dutifully convince millions of Americans that the president and his uh, pals are turning things around. Political analyst Kirk Schlichter says Republicans better come up with a reason for voters to choose them instead or voters won't. Yes, Schlichter points to the Afghanistan event. Gas prices at six dollars a gallon, gallon. the redefinition of a recession, making the rest of us subsidize those who uh, dropped big bucks buying gender study degrees at the University of of, uh, uh, College. Uh, Yes, he says um, the super. Well, he goes on from there, but that's not enough. Republicans, you can blow this red wave, but you shouldn't, he goes on to say. You should crush your opponents. You have historic tailwinds behind you, and you have noted the enemy is a collection of decisions that are not favorable to the United States. Well... All of that being said by Mr. Schlichter, it's not at all clear that the Republicans will, in fact, produce that red wave that was predicted just a short, uh, short while ago. Apparently, the uh, argument that uh, the right or conservatives or Trumpsters or however you want to characterize the enemy uh, is a message that resonates with some voters. Uh, the overturn of Roe versus Wade has resonated and motivated some voters. And that uh, so-called red wave that everyone was very excited about is, again, by no means guaranteed. But, of course, that determination only comes when men and women and those who are eligible to vote actually do it. It's one thing to speculate, to talk about it, to answer a poll. But until you have participated in the polls, the outcome well, that will be determined by someone else. Bottom line, be informed and vote. Russia and China kicked off a week of war games together at a time when the two countries appear to be growing closer over their respective tensions with the United States. The exercise known as Vostok 2022 uh, will go until the 7th of this month at seven firing ranges in the Sea of Japan in Russia's Far East. The Russian Defense Ministry said in its... uh, Statement and will feature 140 aircraft, 60 warships, and more than 50,000 troops. The drills will also involve India, Laos, Mongolia, Nicaragua, Syria, and several former Soviet states, with Russian General Staff Chief uh, General Valery Garizmov uh, overseeing the whole affair. Well, The exercises will include Russian and Chinese navies participating. In joint action to protect sea communications areas or marine economic activity and support for ground troops in uh, littoral areas, the Russian defense ministry said the war games came at a time when both countries have been looking to slow uh, to show strength. Rather, Russia is in the midst of a months long invasion of Ukraine, which has not succeeded as expected which China has specifically not criticized and even blamed on the United States and NATO. China, meanwhile, has grown increasingly adversarial with the United States regarding Taiwan and threatened retaliation before a visit to the island by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Russian President Vladimir Putin supported China through this, accusing the U.S. of using both Ukraine and Taiwan to create Unrest, well, Russia and China have conducted joint war games for years, with last year being the first time the Kremlin had sent troops to Chinese territory for joint exercises. Chinese defense Ministry spokesperson, Colonel Kafei, said that uh, last week that through these drills China aims to deepen pragmatic and friendly cooperation between the militaries of the participating countries. Enhance the level of strategic cooperation among all participating parties and enhance the ability to jointly respond to various security threats. Well both countries have also strengthened ties to another US foe, Iran. The Islamic nation recently sent Russia hundreds of drones, drones rather, to use against Ukraine, although Russia reportedly has been exercising technical difficulties with them. Um, Iran has uh, also signed a cooperation agreement with China last year that Assistant Secretary of State of, for Near Eastern Affairs, Barbara Leaf, described as um, not good for the reason uh, region. Elementary school students' math and reading scores plummeted to the lowest level in decades with the school shutdowns implemented in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. National test results released Thursday show. In math, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which has dubbed itself the nation's report card, reported a first-ever score drop among nine-year-olds since it was first administered in 1973. The reading scores dropped by the largest margin since 1990, the New York Times reported, indicating a serious serious setback for literacy acquisition. The assessment also measured the window between 2020 when COVID-19 erupted and 2022. Average scores for nine-year-old students in 22 declined five points in reading, seven points in mathematics compared to 2020. The learning loss was experienced by kids across race and income levels, but it was particularly severe among low-performing students, a well-documented disparity that widened during the two years of remote school. Students in the 90th uh, percentile of scores lost three points in math, but students in the bottom 10th percentile lost 12 points in math. Black students lost 13 points in math compared with five points among white students, As a consequence, the white-black score gap from 25 points in 2020 has expanded to 33 points in 2022. A May study conducted by Harvard University found that school closures and remote learning disproportionately harmed the academic performance of minority and low-income students, exacerbating the existing gap separating low-income and minority students from their counterparts, uh, particularly their wealthier counterparts. In other news, calling the busing a racist practice, Chicago Mayor Lightfoot is lashing out after a border state begins busing illegal migrants to the new sanctuary city. Now, it's interesting. The point of busing them from Texas elsewhere or Florida elsewhere is to make the point this is a national problem that must be addressed. But the mayors in these cities haven't responded in the the way that mayors from those or governors from those border states had hoped. Not surprising, but disappointing. Iced out Democrat Mary Peltola, uh, Peltola has uh, defeated former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin in an Alaska special general election to fill the remainder of former Representative Don Young's term in Congress, according to a ranked choice voting results announced in the state on Wednesday. Peltola will become the first Alaska native to serve in Congress and the first woman to hold the House seat from the uh, from the state. The seat to represent Alaska's at large congressional district became vacant after young, a Republican who held the seat for 49 years after winning a special election in 1973, passed away earlier this year. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called opposing abortion sinful in remarks last week at the roundtable on women's reproductive health at the University of California, San Francisco Mission Bay Campus, the event was was reportedly a celebration of Women's Health Day of Action as well as Women's Equality Day. Pelosi, a Catholic, called opposition to abortion an assault on women of color and sinful. If you really want to emphasize how bad something is, you just add in there women of color, who, by the way, are aborted at significantly high higher rates than. Uh, Caucasian babies, which Margaret Sanger would have delighted in, given her eugenicist background and her desire to uh, reduce the population of undesirables that included black women and their children. Lamenting fraternity fatalities, uh, tragic hazing deaths, haunt campuses as students begin another semester. Something to keep your eye on, mom and dad, if your sons or daughters are considering um A fraternity changing the narrative. Liberal media are downplaying the president Biden's many failures to exaggerate election chances of his party and making questionable connections. Hunter Biden secured a dinner for a client at the Chinese embassy following a luncheon hosted by then vice president Biden, according to emails. Overheated, California tells drivers to stop charging their electric cars a week after announcing 2035 ban on gas powered vehicles. So you must Uh, Buy electric cars. You just can't power them up. More on that later, if time permits. Citing unchecked power, former President Trump's legal team responded to the Department of Justice argument against special master. And again, the judge will make a determination on that at some point in the future. Not even near uh, can be determined by. Uh, her comments political violence. Kevin McCarthy rebuked President Biden for his politically charged rhetoric during a prebuttal of the Pennsylvania speech that's coming up primetime tonight. Short shrift CNN and ABC broadcasts have been um, quiet on a retiring FBI agent accused of bias in the Hunter Biden investigation. Of course, they're not really covering that subject and haven't since before the election. Tucker Carlson predicts that President Biden will use tonight's speech to push for partisan advantage ahead of the midterms. A political speech rather than one given by a statesman who had pledged to unite the nation. False alarm. All of Los Angeles was told to evacuate in an alert sent in error. Now That had to be pretty, uh, pretty tough to take. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. So stay with us if you can. You're
1: listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, second hour, Zach Elliott. Now I see an invitation to life to the full. Well, with religious intersection, the Christian app, Hallow, has reached the 100 million prayer mark, serving a wide audience of believers. The Department of Justice filing argues the appointment of a special master would slow their investigation. A judge will decide whether or not one will be appointed. And stressing the grid, California tells drivers not to charge their EVs after announcing their EV mandate. California has reaffirmed its commitment to banning gasoline-powered cars and requiring all new sales to be electric vehicles in the coming years. Well, now California's grid operator is telling residents not to charge their electric vehicles during regular heat waves in order to avoid straining the grid. Residents have been advised to take voluntary energy cuts, including setting their thermostats to 78 degrees Fahrenheit and not charging their electric vehicles. This is because the demand for electricity remains high and there's less solar energy available. It turns out you can't run a state on roughly 39 million people entirely on solar panels. Who could have guessed? Well, the U.N. Rights Council Human Rights Council released a report detailing China's treatment of Uyghurs as possible crimes against humanity. The U.N. human rights body will release the report documenting Chinese human rights abuses against the Uyghur minority group hours before the high commissioner, Michelle uh, Bachelet steps down. AFP reported uh, Bachelet had promised to release the long awaited report by the end of the month, but said on August 25th that the substantial input from China given during a customary review period had indefinitely delayed publication. The New York Times weighs in saying the release ended a nearly year long delay that has exposed Miss Backlett and her office to fierce pushback by rights groups, activists, and others who ac- accused her of kowtowing to Beijing, which had sought to block the report. Rank-and-file FBI agents uh, demand Christopher Ray's resignation. The Washington Times reports that rank-and-file agents say that they cannot see how FBI Director Christopher Ray stays in his position after the Washington Times exclusive report about a senior bureau official stepping down under scrutiny for suspected political bias affecting investigations. Kurt um, Suzdak, a lawyer and former FBI agent who represents whistleblowers at the bureau, said agents tell him that Mr. Ray, Mr. Ray rather had lost control of the agency and should resign. I'm hearing from FBI personnel that they feel like the director has lost control of the bureau, he said. They're saying, how does this guy survive? He's leaving. He's got to leave. Benny Johnson says a swarm of FBI agents demand Chris Ray resign as whistleblowers expose everything. Interestingly enough, whistleblowers were called out and they will be penalized if they go to members of Congress moving forward. Not so fast restaurant owners and business advocates are asking governor Newsom to veto the so-called fast act. The wall street journal reports that restaurant operators and business advocates mobilized Tuesday to try to persuade the California governor to veto the bill that would set wages for fast food workers, a move they said could increase costs and set a precedent for other states and cities uh, that they might follow. The effort is being pushed by franchise owners, including many who would have... Uh, have to take on the cost of paying workers a minimum wage as high as $22 an hour starting next year, set by a government-run council created by the bill. Chains that operate their own restaurants, such as Starbucks, uh, Chipotle, and... In-N-Out Burger, for example, would also be affected. Groups representing restaurant companies and owners said they plan to launch an advertising campaign and deploy franchises and business leaders to attempt to persuade the governor, a Democrat, to veto the bill, which they say is the latest evidence of California making it difficult for businesses to thrive. CNBC says nearly 10 percent of McDonald's U.S. restaurants are located in California. The National Restaurant Association and Industry Group has also spent at least one hundred and forty thousand dollars to fight the bill, according to California records. A teacher won a lawsuit after the district forced her to violate her convictions In a victory for free speech at public schools, Fort Riley Middle School officials have agreed to pay $95,000 in damages and attorney's fees for violating a math teacher's First Amendment rights when they reprimanded and suspended her for addressing a student by the student's legal and enrolled name and forced her to conceal the student's social transition from the student's parents attorneys with alliance defending freedom uh, and a new um, uh, uh, law, another law group represented pamela richard in her lawsuit against the school officials the kansas city star reports that in order to be respectful to the student without compromising her own beliefs she referred to the student as miss last name the lawsuit states Her attorney stated Richard regularly uses last names instead of first names as a more formal way of addressing students or getting students' attention. The school district, according to Richard's attorney, also forced the teacher to conceal the student's social transitions from their parents. Rick uh, Ricard was supposed to use the students preferred pronouns and preferred name in class, but the students legal name with parents. The teachers retired in May as uh, and as part of the settlement, the district agreed to issue a statement that she was in good standing without any disciplinary action against her. Her attorney states Fort Worth moms were charged nearly thirteen hundred dollars for curriculum book lists from their public schools. Well, two Fort Worth, Texas, moms were charged more than twelve hundred dollars just to see the public school district's K through 12 curriculum book list. And now one mom has filed a complaint on August the 8th. um, uh, Christina Denapolis, whose daughter is in the eighth grade, filed a public records request with the Fort Worth Independent School District for copies of the book lists for kindergarten through 12th grade. She was told the request would cost an eye popping twelve hundred sixty seven dollars. And fifty cents to fill. Another Fort Worth mom, Jenny Crossland, was trying to decide where to send her daughter to kindergarten and filed the same public records request for K through twelve lists. She was given the same answer: the request would cost twelve hundred sixty-seven dollars and fifty cents, and take eighty-four point five hours of labor. Well, the Goldwater Institute says Texas law requires that any public records fees be reasonable and that for records under 50 pages, fees be limited to photocopying charges. Further, governmental bodies in the state must abide by the attorney general's cost rules when determining how much they will charge to produce public records. Los Angeles County plans to give $1,000 to 1,000 resident, residents rather per month in guaranteed basic income. Los Angeles County officials said Tuesday that a guaranteed basic income has begun to roll out with 1,000 residents now receiving that $1,000 a month until 2025. The recipients for the program were chosen randomly out of more than 180,000 applicants. Supervisor Sheila Kuhl cool said that uh, given the number of county residents who applied, it's abundantly clear that the time has come for the program idea. So they justify the program because lots of people signed up for $1,000 a month for the next um, several years at no... Um, With no obligation. And that somehow proves that it's needed. It says more about human nature, I'm guessing, than it does about the program. Well, you're handing out free money. Of course, plenty of people will apply. Participants in Los Angeles County's program must be 18 years old and have a household income under $56,000 for a single person, $96,000 for a family of four, amongst other requirements. The money's being transferred in the program through a debit card with recipients reported to be ranging in age from 18 to 91 and speaking languages, including Armenian, Cantonese, Farsi, Spanish and English, officials told the station. Well, Bed Bath and Beyond is planning to close 150 stores and cut 20 percent of their staff. The uh, flailing home goods retailer unveiled its um, ambitious turnaround plan on Wednesday, a plan that includes closing the stores, cutting 20% of its staff, and backpedaling on its strategy of pushing private labels over national brands. The changes has come after a tumultuous few years for the once-dominant home emporium that have included executive turmoil, mounting losses, and a volatile stock price thanks to meme investors. The home goods retailer saw a 283 um dollar loss per share in its first quarter, missing the $1.39 loss per share predicted by analysts, rather, Bed Bath & Beyond CEO Mark Tritton. He subsequently stepped down from his position and was replaced uh, by an uh, interim CEO, Sue Grove, who served on the company's board. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're just working our way through some of the day's headlines. Coming up in the second hour, Zach Elliott, author of Now I See, An Invitation to Life. To the full you're listening to the georgine rice show
1: you're listening to the Georgine rice show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine kpdq hey
2: we're back you're listening to the georgine rice show well u n inspectors have arrived at the at the power plant in Ukraine, the nuclear power plant, and they're ready to survey the uh, the site a team of u n inspectors made its way toward the Ukrainian nuclear power plant Wednesday on a perilous, long-sought mission to safeguard the site and prevent a catastrophic event uh, from the fighting raging around it. The site is the biggest nuclear plant in Europe. Fighting in early March caused a brief fire at its training complex Uh, And in recent days, the plant was temporarily knocked offline because um, because of damage, heightening fears of a radiation leak or a reactor meltdown. Officials have started distributing anti-radiation iodine pills to nearby residents for months as the fighting is played out. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency has sought access to the plant for an unprecedented wartime mission. And world leaders have uh, demanded that the U.N. watchdog be allowed to inspect it. That is at this point. Being done. U.S. District Judge Benjamin Beaton of the Western District of Kentucky ruled that Kentucky's largest city cannot enforce its LGBT non discrimination ordinance against photographer Chelsea Nelson, who's motivated by her faith to celebrate marriage as the union of only opposite couples, sex couples and refuses to shoot same sex wedding ceremonies. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case of a Christian web designer challenging a Colorado state law requiring her to create wedding websites for couples she cannot support. She's also offering similar services for other couples. Russian President Vladimir Putin will not attend Mikhail Gorbachev's funeral on Saturday because of his work schedule. At least that's what he said. His spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said it comes after Putin is shown a, 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 on Russian state television bowing his head after laying a. Bouquet of red roses near Gorbachev's open casket at the hospital where he died on Tuesday at the age of 91. He paused for a moment of silence, bowed his head, and briefly laid his uh, hand on the casket, then made a sign of the cross. Gorbachev's funeral ceremony will be on Saturday at the Moscow Hall of Columns. It's an historic. um site for funerals, services for highly high officials, rather, including Joseph Stalin in 1953. Gorbachev will then be buried at the cemetery in Moscow next to his wife, Reza, who died in 1999. For the first time in 25 years and only the second time since 1950, no storms powerful enough to be named, um, formed over the um, Atlantic Ocean from the beginning of July through August. During the first half of what is typically considered hurricane season, there's been hardly a whisper, and these despite NOAA forecasting earlier this year, an above-average hurricane season. The odds of these forecasts verifying correctly are going down by the day, Colorado State University research scientist Phil Klotzbach acknowledged. Now the odds of getting 20 named storms, 10 hurricanes, and 5 majors are really low. Forecasting the weather and climate keeps you uh, humble. If only <laughs> that were the case, that uh, humility can certainly isn't shared by some uh, politicians who deride as climate deniers any who voice skepticism of their dire climate warnings. U.S. life expectancy has dropped again. This time it can't be blamed on COVID. The life expectancy rate dropped for a second consecutive year in the U.S., now falling by a combined total of three years. The last time the U.S. saw two consecutive years of life expectancy decline was during World War II. While COVID related deaths were the primary factor in the drop in 2020, the drop in 2021 has been primarily related to drug overdoses, suicide, heart disease and liver disease. The average American's life expectancy has fallen to 76 years and one month. And the last time it was this low was back in 1996. The opioid epidemic has really taken a toll, at least uh, as last year saw a new record high of 107,000 overdose deaths. The other growing troubling factor has been the rate of suicide deaths, which had fallen since uh, 2018, only to jump back to 14.1 percent per 100,000 last year. Republicans are promising an investigation of the FBI as whistleblowers reportedly call for Ray's ouster. A judge has ordered the source of the anti-Trump dossier to explain his need for classified docs for defense. The Biden administration may begin uh, pressuring other countries to push vulnerable youth into hormones and surgeries. A Nobel Prize winning German biologist says multiple genders are nonsense and unscientific. NPR is claiming environmentalists should get credit for a push toward nuclear power. And feds pinpoint nearly 30,000 Mexican passport holders with Middle Eastern names in a fraud investigation. Well, on this day in history, 1807, former Vice President Aaron Burr is found not guilty of treason. 1923, the Japanese cities of Tokyo and Yokohama are devastated by an earthquake that claims some 140,000 lives. 1939, World War II begins as Nazi Germany invades Poland. 1942, U.S. District Court uh, Judge Martin Welsh ruled from Sacramento, California on a lawsuit brought by the American Civil Liberties Union on behalf of uh, Fred Kormatsu, upholding the wartime detention of Japanese Americans as well as Japanese nationals. 1961, the Soviet Union ends a moratorium on atomic testing with an above-ground nuclear explosion in Central Asia. 1969, a coup in Libya brings Muammar Gaddafi into power. 1972, American Bobby Fischer wins the international chess crown in Reykjavik, Iceland, as Boris Spassky of the Soviet Union resigns before the resumption of Game 21. 1983, a Soviet jet fighter shoots down a Korean Airlines Boeing 747, killing 269 after the airliner enters Soviet airspace. 1985, a U.S.-French expedition locates the wreckage of the Titanic on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean, roughly 400 miles off Newfoundland. 2004, more than a 1,000 people are taken hostage by heavily armed Chechen militants at a school in Beslan in southern Russia. More than 330 people, more than half of them children, would be killed in the three-day ordeal. 2009, Vermont's law allowing same-sex marriage goes into effect. Well, two buses carrying migrants from Texas arriving in Chicago on Wednesday night. The buses arrived at the Union Station at around 7.30 p.m., carrying migrants who crossed the southern border illegally. An estimated 80 to 100 people were on the buses, including 20 to 30 small children. Many of the migrants said that they were from Venezuela. Chicago is the latest city where migrants have been bused from Texas following New York City and Washington, D.C., all of which have Democrat mayors and declared themselves sanctuary cities. Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott said in a statement that he looks forward to seeing Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot welcome the migrants since Chicago is a sanctuary city. President Biden's inaction at our southern border continues putting the lives of Texans and Americans at risk. And is overwhelming our communities, the governor said, to continue providing much needed relief to our small overrun border towns. Chicago will join fellow sanctuary cities, Washington, D.C. and New York City as an additional drop off location. Mayor Lightfoot loves to uh, tout the responsibility of her city to welcome all regardless of legal status. And I look forward to seeing this responsibility in action as these migrants receive resources from a sanctuary city with a capacity to serve them. End quote the well, statement from the governor's office said that Chicago is being added as a drop off location for future migrant buses in response to the president's open border policies, overwhelming border communities in Texas. A spokesperson from Chicago's mayor, uh, mayor's office said in a statement that Abbott was without any shame or humility. As a city, we are doing everything we can to ensure these migrants, these immigrants, and their families can receive shelter, food, and most importantly, protection. This is not new. Chicago welcomes hundreds of migrants every year to our city and provides much-needed assistance, the spokesperson said, from the mayor's office. Unfortunately, Texas Mayor Greg Abbott is without any shame or humility. Now, I'm not sure how that fits the situation but he went on, but ever since he put these racist practices of expulsion in place... Uh, We have been working with our community partners to ready the city to receive these individuals. Now, by the way, the um, the Biden administration has been busing people all across the country for uh, for months now. So I don't know why it's racist when Governor Abbott does it as a cry for help. In any event, it's been done. And um, the, the goal is to force the hand of the administration to deal with the crisis at the border. Yeah, I don't have time for a new story, so I will take a break. Coming up in the second hour, and we've got news and traffic coming up here momentarily, we'll hear from Zach Elliott, author of Now I See, an invitation to life to the full. We'll also talk about top medical schools that are weeding out um, uh, those who don't share their ideological bent. And uh, the rainbow fentanyl, there's a warning that... um this is a danger coming and tar- coming to and targeting young people in particular. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm so delighted to have with me in studio Zach Elliott. He is the co-author of Now I See: An Invitation to Life to the Full. Now, what does that mean? We hear about. Abundant life in scripture. And he makes the point that our souls long for a life that is full and flourishing. But I wonder how many of us could say with confidence and joy, my life is full and flourishing. And this happens to be the condition of the world. Well, this book is an invitation to life to the full. Uh, And through story and metaphor, ancient wisdom, modern understanding, he invites, he and his co-author invites us on a journey to understand that flourishing is not about circumstance. And we so often link how we're doing to circumstance, but rather it's about relationship and you can guess where that relationship is going. Well, I'm delighted to uh, to talk about it here today with Zach Elliott. He began his career with the Oregon State Police as a forensic evidence technician. You could have been on television these days. Mm-hmm. He then served as a church planner and a pastor before launching V3, a ministry committed to sharing the gospel and loving the church. He is a husband and father, a speaker and author, a thought leader, engaging the world with a powerful message of hope and restoration in Christ. He has a contagious love of life. He finds beauty in the Most Unlikely Places, and today he joins us to talk about his book, Now I See, An Invitation to Life. To the full. Zach Elliott, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for welcoming me in. I love it. Thank you.
2: Well, this is home to you, and I know yeah. you have moved away to Florida. and Ministry has called you there, but this really is home for you.
3: It is, and it's so good to be here. We've had such a great uh, last couple weeks being in Oregon, so every second I can be here, yeah. I'm
2: here. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome home. We're Thank glad you. you're here. Well, you write in this book what is really a journey. It's not just a story. It's a journey that begins where we all begin. And Uh, The thing that struck me is that it not only applies to those who are outside of the Christian faith, but all of us begin in what you describe, uh, and as Plato described, sort of a cave that we imagine is the whole world and reality uh, as we know it, and we imagine that that's all there is. Talk a little bit about your journey of faith and how you escaped um, the limitations of um, our understanding of uh, what life is into a relationship with Christ.
3: Yeah. I think that for me, Plato did such a good job of describing this really transition that has to take place uh, to come into uh, to the fullness of truth. And so in, in the Allegory of the Cave, these prisoners are, are trapped and they're shackled and they see only in part. And there's an invitation to see in full, but it, it requires the risk of letting go of what you know and risking stepping into a little bit more mystery and something that you don't know. And as somebody who grew up in the church, I grew up in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, and so I was immersed in uh, a conversation of faith. I had been through catechism and had those conversations, and I could answer questions about faith uh, quickly. You could ask me anything, and I could recite the Apostles' Creed or Mm -hmm. talk about this or that in our faith. But it was—I say we get it, but we don't have it. And I was one of those people who could say these things that I believed, but they were kind of existed out there in abstraction— and it was a journey of almost recognizing that I was lost inside the church um, until I came face-to-face with that. I, I describe it in the, in the book as the voice that keeps calling you mm-hmm. and that voice that John 9, the man born blind, heard when Jesus spoke to him. And for me, it took me um, kind of growing up in the church but being willing to let the Spirit of God and the Scriptures call me closer and closer and closer until I was before Jesus and really listening to his claim and his question, do you believe? Do you want to see? And I came to that point and said, yes. Yes. And it began a journey of really recognizing that he is who he says he is, and his offer of life to the full is there, but it's found in him personally. Yeah,
2: yeah. and the implications of that are just tremendous, but we may not appreciate that until we've made that uh, connection. I like the phrase that you use, lost in the church, because many of us come to sincere f- um, faith in Christ, and we, we have a relationship through Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven, and yet there's a limit to our understanding of what— that abundant life, that fullness of life that we are called to means. We have our own culture within the church that sometimes prevents us from breaking free and experiencing that relationship that this book really calls us to. Why do you think that's the case?
3: I think, you know, first, there's well-intention there to provide structure. And as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 15 years, and so uh, we want to teach. And so we teach via the head level. And that's a good thing. And we're well-intentioned in wanting to disciple and guide people uh, to the truth. But we can never forget that the truth there's an incarnational nature to truth. And that invites the relational side. And there's risk there from a pastoral side. Mm -hmm. We have to have a higher trust in Jesus, that the same God who finds us and found Paul and finds those who, through his spirit, through dreams, visions, God is at work. And we have to trust that, Jesus, that if we introduce people to him— that he will he will provide them, he'll open their eyes, and he'll give them that spiritual insight, that spiritual vision to see him. And that's really what must take place. We can guide them to him. We can use the scripture for teaching, correcting, rebuking, for bringing them rightly to him. But the Spirit of God opens our eyes, and He allows us to see who He really is.
2: I think it's our human nature. When we come to faith in Christ, we sort of continue in the same vein that we've always known, what's familiar to us and what's natural in the flesh. And we don't really realize how dramatic the call is on our life and what He's calling us to. And it's so different and so much broader and fuller than we could ever imagine, that sometimes we are comfortable in that cave, if you will, with what's familiar to us, and we don't break free because we still imagine, as we did before we came to Christ, that we can just orchestrate events and circumstances in such a way that we will um, find that, that fullness and joy, but it's not quite satisfying. It never quite gets there in the way that we hope and imagine that it will.
3: Yeah, we talk about in the book that we we squat a lot in religion. We use those words, and it's almost uh, Rebecca, who I was in conversation writing the book. We I remember us just writing this on her back porch, and and we were trying to work this part out. And I actually got in a wall sit on the out, you know, sitting against the mm-hmm. outside of her house, and said for so long I felt like that, like I was doing all the right things and working hard to believe all the right things, but it was in my strength holding those things up. And that's exhausting. And there's a lot of people in the church who who are desperate to find rest. You know, we're restless mm-hmm. until we find our rest in him. And he is there. But it does require a letting go of our own, holding up our circumstance and our understanding and really trusting the relationship that, that he offers.
2: It's that, I'm reminded of the scripture where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and light. And we sometimes really strain at that. it doesn't feel that way for me. It doesn't, that's not how my relationship is moving forward. And I think that's a a signal that maybe we're not experiencing all that he has for us. Maybe our relationship isn't what's driving us. It's more orchestrating our circumstance.
3: Yeah. In Plato's allegory, he describes the difficulty of moving from the truth that you've seen the fiction in the cave to the the fullness of truth outside of the cave. And he he talks about how difficult that pivot is and how much harder it is, especially as we build merits and rewards for the cave. And often in culture and in the church, we build in systems that kind of reinforce and keep us in those postures that are putting the weight on us rather than the weight on God. And we're rewarded almost for the wrong things, Mm -hmm. uh, for the things that are almost inhibiting us from finding our ultimate rest in him. And so there's a good conversation to be had. And that's what I think is so exciting about offering this invitation. It's why we felt like now is the time to share it is the church is having a broad conversation right now in a good conversation about who are we as a people of God and, and what is life to the full. Um, And that that has to be true in us first as we enter the world. And that's a really important conversation.
2: What made that change for you? What brought you from the, the metaphorical cave to that fullness that you write about in the book and take us on a journey to explore and walk in.
3: Yeah. For me, I had to, it, I talk about in the, the the book, there's a difference between being humble and being humbled. Hmm. And you can be piously humble and go to church and recite the things, as I said, but you, ha- you we have to be brought to the end of ourselves and realize that he is creator and we are creature. And I talk about the fact that there needs to be a realignment, a recalibration and that's a pretty humbling thing. And that's what had to happen to me. I had become pretty confident in my own um, ability, my own mind, even my own righteousness as I found it in the church. It was you know, veily clo- you know, know, thinly cloaked righteousness as a guy who attends church, but it was resting on me. Mm-hmm. And slowly I had to come face to face with the fact that I was full of quite a bit of pride and quite a bit of rebellion and be brought to the to truly face that and face the fact that I am creature, he is creator. And it was the encounter of that truth that I would say is the difference between being humble and carrying that load on our own and being humbled, where you truly are brought low and you recognize that he, you know, Colossians talks about we were made by him and for him. Mm -hmm. And when you're face to face with that, that unsettles you and it disrupts you. But that's where I had to come. I had to have kind of the stool knocked out from under me and be reminded me that I was creature and or that I am creature and I wasn't here first uh, so that I could come face
2: to face with him. Mm. Again, the the phrase, we get it, but we don't have it. When you began to um, come out into the light in this more unique way and experience this fullness, was this the the result of a point where you came to your end? Did you hear God calling in a unique way? What began that journey for you uh, from that uh, place of, of familiarity to this place of unfamiliarity and dependence that results in fullness?
3: Yeah, it, w- it quite literally was that, that whisper. And people talk about hearing from God, mm-hmm. and, um, and different people have different ways of discussing that. For me, I was pastoring. I was in my first uh, season as a pastor. I was an associate pastor in a church. And I was doing a lot of doing what I thought was the work of the church. But inside, there was not a, there was not a flourishing life in me. And my relationship with God was, was dry, very distant, very dry. And it was existing at a head level. And I was operating from kind of head to hands mm-hmm. without the heart and the inner transformation. And the church that I was working in, we were all laboring in that together And I got to the point where I recognized how that was not sustainable for me. And not only that, but that I was not shepherding people into that easy burden and that light yoke that you described, Mm -hmm. and that this is not what Jesus was talking about. And I had a crisis moment in my faith and in the church, and I went into my office at the church, I shut the door, and I said... God, I think I'm done. Like, I want to be out. Mm. I cannot do this.
2: I'm going to leave you there. We need to take a break, but we'll pick it up where you left off. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation with Zach Elliott. He is the co-author of Now I See, an invitation to life to the full. He was a pastor in the Newburg area for uh, many years, and we're just delighted to have you back here, albeit on vacation, <laughs> but you're back home for a little season. Just before the break, I had asked you a question about how this um, this journey began for you, uh, this transition from uh, allowing circumstance to determine your well-being, if you will, and uh, developing a relationship with Christ in such a way that you're experiencing his fullness. And you were talking about having a crisis moment. You'd gone in. You're you're in ministry. You're pastoring. You'd gone into your office. You'd closed the door. What happened?
3: Yeah. Well, that day, I really had hit that point of saying, I, I cannot continue in the way that I'm currently operating. So I shut the door. and I said, God, I think I'm done. I think that—and really just praying in conversation with God, saying, I think I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And— the best thing that I can describe is, you know, you hear that quiet voice like at the center mm-hmm. of your brain and it's just God speaking and you just hear truth. And I was brought to Proverbs, the end of Proverbs, where there's no vision the people perish. And that just rang in my head. And on the backside of that, the vision is Jesus. The vision is Jesus. It was just a whisper kind of thought. And my mom had given me a book written by a guy from England named Pete Gregg, and he wrote a poem. And at the beginning of that poem, it says, The Vision is Jesus. And that just kept repeating, you know, where there's no vision, the people perish, the vision is Jesus, almost like a call and response. And so I just wrestled with that. I prayed with that for a second. And our church had a vision statement on the wall, and it was long and wordy and wonderful. But I just said, Jesus, you are the vision. And all of those old hymns, be the center and be mm-hmm. thou my vision, all that stuff was kind of stirred up in me in that prayer. And I just said, Jesus, you are the center and you haven't been. And if I'm going to continue, if this is going to continue, you must be the center. And so I just went to my desk and I took out four printer pages out of my printer and I wrote, the vision is Jesus. And I just wrote a VU for me, that was vision up. And then I wrote a VI and a VO. And I just resigned that day to say, I don't want to participate with anything where Jesus is not the center. Mm-hmm. And I want to look to him. I want to look more like him. And I want to look with him and see who and what and how he sees in the world. And those four pieces of paper actually became the outline for this book. And that was like 14 years ago. And so I kept those. And that became my own personal way of discipleship and discipleship in my family and the way that we oriented pastoral leadership in the church that's that was kind of the inner dna and along the way the last 14 years i've had several people say you should share that in a different form you know you've talked about it in small groups and sermons and conversations over coffee um, but a good friend of mine came to me 3 years ago and said would you write that down and help make this possible? But it was that day really at a desperate place saying, God, I think I'm done. That he answered with, I was done because I had no vision. Mm-hmm. He, he had stopped being the center for me and he needed to bring me back to that
2: place. Now, My guess is every believer who's listening would agree with everything that you've said, that Christ should be the center, that, uh, that he should be our vision, but may not know how to get from mm-hmm. where we are. Uh, a little bit shackled into a place where we're confined by what's familiar to us and what's accepted even in our congregations to making him the focus how do how do we make that transition how do we begin to live out what we all agree the scripture uh tells us is what he has in store for what uh, for us which is so much more than most of us are experiencing
3: yeah It may sound so, so simple, um, but I I really do think that it's very simple. It's not easy, but I think that it is simple in the sense that for me, I needed that return to my creaturehood, Mm -hmm. to that creator-creature relationship. That had to get realigned, and that had to be the starting place for relationship. Him as creator, me as a creature that he made, and that recognition that I was made by him and for him— and I, I really think, again, our culture is moving so fast and we want really wonderful answers and, and great intellectual answers or powerful action steps that we can take. But I really think that the most powerful thing we can do is return to him as creature and come to the creator and say, I miss you, mm-hmm. I long for you, I need you, and, and really confess. It's a, it's, we talk about it in terms of a creature confession that says you are God and I am not, and we have to get to a place where we're honestly saying that from our heart. I think that's the starting point. That's what I found. That's what my co-author Rebecca Sandberg found, is that we had attached quite a bit of our other armor, other things intellectually, mm-hmm. patchwork uh, theology and culture. So it, it it all kind of encumbered us, and we needed to let that go and come back to a starting place to say. We were made by you and for you. You are God. I am not. And if you remember like the the uh, Atlas carrying the weight of the world, I uh, talk about being alone at the center. If you can imagine with us at the center, the weight of the world is really resting on our shoulders.
2: We, we were never designed to never, attempt to carry. Never,
3: ever designed for that. But that's what we have bought culturally. And even in the church, we've started to adopt that posture. And it's just wearing us down to the point we can't breathe. And this confession of the creature is to step out of center. And it sounds so simple, but it's really freeing to say, you are God and I am not. And so here, is, here are all of the things that I have been carrying on me that do not belong on my show. I was never made for that. I was made for this relationship and to find life flowing from you. And so I talk about in the book, waiting in a place until that is the honest outpouring of your heart. Mm-hmm. You are God, and I am not. And where we can honestly say that to him, um, because in our world, we build much, and we cre- much of our world is created and controlled by us. And it's hard for us sometimes to get back to that place to remember that he is God and we are not. So.
2: You know What you described earlier as being really very simple but difficult, it runs counter to everything in human history, our natural bent, and yet he calls us to that kind of relief mm-hmm. and refreshment <laughs> and relationship that is rare among us. And I think especially, as you pointed out, we have so many things constructed around us that we think we have to maintain in order to please him and to maintain our p- position in the church and try to maintain a reputation in the culture that we are essentially frantic and, and worn out in so many ways. And I can relate to that, being feeling worn out in so many ways. And yet God is calling us to a flourishing that in the 21st century at least in America I think is rare. Yeah. And yet when you when you go back to that very simple beginning really of our faith where we recognize our need of him and recognize our dependence on him and that he is the one who will bear the weight of the world uh what a relieving uh experience to have that carries us forward.
3: Yeah. I have found so much we're we're sitting in the beautiful Pacific Northwest and so it's easy for us here but I have found so much joy and so much help from creation and encouragement in my own life and in the life of others to, to just say, go outside and sit down on the grass and remember you weren't here first, mm. but, but actually put yourself in nature and remember it helps us. It's, it's his yes. studio. Just get out there and look up, sit down, find rest, say, you are God, I am not. And just say it over and over and over again. Just wait there until, as you describe, you feel that weight of the world transfer. And really, there's this beautiful space between the lifting of the weight of the world and kind of the settling of the amazing weight of the love of God. That is not a crushing weight, but it's a weight. I mean, it's a humbling weight. And to be in that space where the weight of the world's being lifted and the weight of God's love is kind of resting down upon mm. you. That's it. You are God, I am not. And so... If you're listening, pull over, go park, go outside. Find, it's such a gift yeah. to get to go out there and let all of creation remind us that he is God, we are not.
2: I'm talking with Zach Elliott, the author of Now I See, an invitation to see to, to life to the full. We'll be back in just a few moments.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing an important conversation with Zach Elliott, who is the co author of Now I See An Invitation to Life to the Full. He wrote the book with Rebecca Sandberg, and I, I just love that it calls us back to. Uh, the vision that we must have in order not to perish, which is an awkward way of saying it, but that vision is Jesus. But you go from there, vision up, vision in, vision out, vision, uh, the vision is Jesus. Explain that because it's an important way for us to, to see the world uh, and to see our role in God's kingdom.
3: Yeah, it's it's just such a gentle way. You used that word earlier that Jesus's invitation is really gentle. It's easy. And when we come to him, the first thing that happens is we've been talking about this primary relationship is creature creator. And so we look to him and everything has to start there because that is where that that weight shifts and we realize that we are not at the center and that he is God and we are not. And that really unlocks for the creature our primary position and our primary posture, which is one of adoration. It's, we were made to, I, I say we were made to love him back. And so this is the first thing that must happen. And we, in, these things happen in sequence. It's kind of a trail. We use that trail mm-hmm. imagery. But the first thing that happens to us is we encounter this perfect love in God, and we receive it, and we want to love him back. And it's in that adoration that we discover that not only has that, is that our vision up, we're looking to him, but it's in that place that we recover Id- our identity, our true identity, and we realize that same life has been given to me. And now my destiny is really to look just like him. And so I'm on this path to mature and to look more and more and more like this perfect love that I have come to find and to know. And so vision up literally comes vision in. And this is a, this is a big one for us in the church to, to have a conversation about that. This is a miracle. Vision in. Mm-hmm. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And there's a gift, again, a gift of rest, that he does this. We come to him as creatures. He, uh, separated from him, he restores the relationship with us. And in that restoration, he actually puts his nature in us. He makes us new. And the, the original design of our life was to look just like him. And that's our destiny. So we look to him. We begin to look more like him. The more we live in adoration, the more our lives experience transformation. And as that transformation takes place, we talk, it about, we talk about it in terms of love maturing. Mm-hmm. And really, transformation is just our lives, his love in us maturing and maturing and maturing, leaving infancy, passing through adolescence, and reaching that really generous place of mature love, sacrificial love that he showed us in the first place. And that's the destiny from up to in, and then what, what has been birthed and matured in begins to express itself out and we begin to see who and what and how he sees and that's what we describe as vision out is seeing through this lens of mature love and that is a beautiful thing and it's a disruptive thing because mature love we were just talking about this mature love sees kind of in three dimension it sees the good it sees mm-hmm. the broken and it sees the future and it recognizes that right now those things are commingled mm-hmm. and so in my spouse in my neighbor In my enemy, in my friend, in myself, there is good, very good, that was designed and given by God. There is also deep brokenness in all of us that is different, but we share equal brokenness. It's just, it it expresses itself differently. And there is a future and a hope and a promise of wholeness for each of us. And those things are commingled. And so once we understand that, we can really find a pretty generous. Place where we can pull up a chair with our neighbor, our spouse, our friend, we ourselves are welcomed, and we can look around and say, You are good, we are broken, and there is a future, and we're walking toward that. In the church, sometimes we bifurcate or we separate these things out, and we try to live with that kind of vision Mm -hmm. without starting in worship, and we can't do it. The middle place, that miracle of transformation, flows only from Him. So in the book, we talk about this is why. The vision is Jesus, and it's only in Jesus where we are brought into a place of worship and experiencing this radical miracle of this new life of love birthed in us. It's only in that that we're able to see the maturity that allows us to sit at that place without fear, without disgust, without scarcity, and to be able to be in a posture where we can hope for a future that's beyond our ability. And so up, in, out. That's a, and it's a continual loop and what what we say in the book is the beautiful life the full life this flourishing life that we've been called to it's actually in that flow of adoration to transformation and love and ultimately love is poured out to the point where you have nowhere else to go but back up yeah and it's a yeah.
2: what a beautiful picture of what god intends and it starts with that very simple thing responding to the invitation that voice that has been calling to come into his presence and uh, for Jesus to be the vision. Uh, what a beautiful thing. And it, it's not achieved by striving. It's not achieved by status, by the accumulation of certain things that um, somehow elevates us to the point where we can experience flourish. It's just so counter-cultural that it's um, it's an amazing thing, and it's the work of, of God in us. Mm-hmm. It's not what we do ourselves. Now, you— um, have moved from the Pacific Northwest, pastoring in Newburgh. You now live in Florida. Ministry called you there. You love the Pacific Northwest, but because you want to be obedient to God's call, you've moved to Florida. You had an opportunity to pastor once again. Um, what are you doing now, and why have you chosen not to do what's familiar to you, what um, you have done well here in the Pacific Northwest in Florida?
3: Yeah, well, we it was very clear that God had, had called us from Newburgh to Tampa, Florida, where we are now. And I had to recognize in that call that God was doing—he was calling me into a new season. And I was actually preaching through Exodus a few years ago when God began to move in this way. And it's unsettling. It was disruptive. And as a church planter and pastor— the first thing I wanted to do when I landed on the ground was, okay, let's get to work, let's pastor, let's plant, let's find a role in a church, and we had all of those opportunities. But through great counsel, great friendship, great pastoral wisdom around us, we held to waiting on God and walking through a really disruptive season of kind of letting God birth a new thing. Mm -hmm. And the dream he had given us was to— really um, see this idea of reformation and revival. I talked to you about that Francis, Francis Schaeffer had talked about, this beautiful vision of the gospel-producing life and beauty in our culture. Uh, we went back and said, if that's going to take place, uh, it really is going to call for healthy and flourishing churches. And, and we need to see the local church uh, healthy and alive and flourishing. And the churches of people, it's not a place, but expressed locally, those, the gathering, the visible church mm-hmm. has to be healthy and flourishing. And if that's the case, at the center of that, those who are shepherding, those who are teaching, those who are guiding uh, and encouraging the church, they have to be flourishing. And so as we prayed about it and kind of looked at that big vision to see the life and beauty of the gospel in our world, we thought, well, the best work we can do is to start right there at the pastoral level. And so we have a ministry that cares for pastors, encourages pastors, and we've built a community of practice to really nurture the life of pastors in the church at the same time as we're engaging the culture with this invitation to life to the full. And we see it as a both end. You have to have that gospel continuing to go into culture and move in culture, And we have to have a flourishing local church. So our ministry now is working on both of those things.
2: Now, if you had not begun this journey that your book takes your readers through where Jesus becomes the vision, um, when the move came, do you think you might have um, said, you know, I'm not going to do what's familiar. I'm going to pastor. I'm in a church plant. That's what I do. Um, Do you think what you're doing now is the fruit of uh, stopping at that moment of crisis with the office door closed and just crying out to God and meeting him and him meeting you in a very unique way that started from that simple beginning uh, again. Do you think things might've been different?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I probably, well, I most certainly probably would have burned out in ministry. Mm -hmm. I can just say that with uh, completely the track that I was headed down, I would have led to what I see, unfortunately so much with pastors who are just weary and exhausted and burdened and they're trying out of their own strength to do the best they can. And that's probably where I would have ended up. And so being released from that, really experiencing this beautiful rest and fullness in Jesus and relationship offered me both the rest and that disruptive part of the relationship where he is first and he calls you. And once we begin, the, the greater and greater we begin to trust him, the more hungry we are to follow him, even into the uncomfortable and disruptive places because we've learned over and over and over that he is good. And there is something that we cannot see right around the corner. And we almost are so hungry for it that we say, even though I know this and it's easier in some ways to stay, i got to see what he sees because he just has such a better Mm -hmm. vantage. And we learn that over time, uh, just through simple obedience. Oswald Chambers always says, obey now. Whatever he's calling you to obey right now, because it'll lead you to that next moment where he invites you to something that you can't see. And that's what we found.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, once again, the book is titled Now I See an Invitation to Life to the Full. And if you're looking for that fullness and you're willing to go back to the very beginning, this is an excellent book for you. Zach Elliott is the author with Rebecca Sandberg. Where can our listeners find a copy?
3: You know, the best place right now is Amazon. We Mm -hmm. just released the book on Amazon and our publisher is... Release the paperback and the Kindle right now. And September 13th is actually the official, official book launch that'll happen in Tampa. So you'll get a hardcover in, in, uh, on September 13th. But right now, Amazon, just go to Amazon. And then we're working hard through our publisher to try to get local Christian bookstores and the Barnes and Nobles and all yeah. of those, but that'll come. So Amazon's the best bet right now. Go to Amazon and you can get it there.
2: And for people who are interested in following you, is there a way to connect with you?
3: Yeah, if you, you can find me on Facebook, Zach, Elliott, Zach J. Elliott. There's an author page, uh, and so you'll see the author page, Zach J. Elliott, and I'm on Twitter and on Instagram, and so you can find us there. And, and really follow along. We're excited to see what God does as we get to go share the book. And this book started in conversation with Rebecca, my co-author, and I, and we are excited. It's an, It's literally an invitation. Mm-hmm. And so what we're most excited about is as the invitation goes out, we want to hear what people are discovering and how their stories are changing and what they're finding. And so on my website, com, there's actually a contact section, and I invite people to share their stories. And I would love that. Uh, as people engage this conversation and they walk that trail with us, we would love to inspire a fresh conversation about the gospel just through us all following this invitation. So, ZachJELliott.com is the website. The contact section is where you can find that. Uh,
2: excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for not burning out and for responding to, uh, to Christ's invitation uh, to make him your vision. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I found this rather interesting and very telling about the course our country has taken. Apparently, the best medical schools in the country are weeding out applicants who are insufficiently devoted to the leftist creed of diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI. That's according to a new report. It was released by the nonprofit Do No Harm. Well, the nonprofit is dedicated to protecting health care from a radical, divisive and discriminatory ideology. They conducted an analysis of medical school application processes, which found that these selective institutions are raising an additional barrier to entry on on top of the strenuous tests and grade requirements. So it doesn't matter how qualified you are, um, how well you stack up with others who are seeking uh, the same kind of appointment, it's what you think about certain issues. Well, the review of the admissions process at 50 of the top-ranked medical schools found that 36 asked applicants their views on or experience in DEI, again, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, uh, the Do No Harm Report reads, which was obtained by National Review. Now, many were overt in asking applicants if they agreed with certain statements about racial politics and the causes of uh, desperate, um, health outcomes. And according to the report, medical schools are asking these questions in order to turn ideological support for health equity and social justice initiatives into a, a credential that increases an applicant's chance of acceptance. Screen out dissenters and the signal to all applicants that they are expected to support this new cause. And this is all in quotes. Well, top medical schools have woven their commitment to woke politics into their application process, asking future doctors to prove their commitment to to divisive ideologies or risk being rejected from medical schools, the report concluded. Now, Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, founder of Do No Harm, after serving as associate dean at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine, said that in his view, the use of ideologically slanted application questions will stunt the development of those applicants who do make it uh, through the the, uh, gauntlet to enter a top medical school. The questions posed in the secondary applications require a specific mindset and well-defined political ideology for an applicant to succeed in their quest to enter medical school. So they're weeding people out. Now, is this religious discrimination or is it viewpoint discrimination or is it religious discrimination by way of viewpoint discrimination? This rigidity in thinking prevents real freedom of thought. Uh, Goldfarb went on to say, well, the questions identified in the report vary in their implicit assumptions and the extent to which they probe applicants. Some ask about the unique experiences and challenges that applicants may have faced or name check diversity and ask if uh, very general in very general terms about its importance. Others are more direct. The University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, for example, they profess to be interested in combating all forms of systemic barriers and entreat applicants to share their thoughts on opposing uh, systemic racism, anti-LGBTQ+, discrimination and misogyny. And that's all in quotes. How will you contribute? The application asks. Well, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School asks uh, some pretty prospective um, attendees rather, to describe an interaction or experience that has made you more sensitive or appreciative of cultural differences and or how you have committed yourself to understanding and aiding in the pursuit of equity and inclusion in your academic, professional or personal life. Well, at the University of Minnesota, applicants are first told that our country is reckoning with its history, racism, racial injustice, and especially anti-black racism. Now, this, uh, then they're asked to share their reflections on experiences with and greatest lessons learned about systemic racism. And at the University of Miami, applicants are bluntly queried about what they have done to help identify, address, and correct an issue of systematic discrimination. None of the aforementioned schools responded to a request for comment. Well, Goldfarb dismissed the idea that these questionnaires are merely being used to deduce whether applicants have a baseline level of respect for people coming from various backgrounds or greater purpose for pursuing a career in medicine. The classic question, why do you want to become a physician, could get at motivation without invoking race. There should not be a litmus test for students to show their progressive bona bona fides in order to qualify for medical school, he went on to say. He himself can tell his own story about political dogma in the medical field. Earlier this year, he was denounced by a former colleague at the University of Pennsylvania after he sent a tweet questioning whether the underperformance of minority medical students is entirely attributable to discrimination. This is a question you simply are not allowed to ask. For this crime, his punishment was having his tweet called racist by the chair of the medical department who pledged in an email sent to the entire uh, community to continue to fight the biases and injustices that erode the health of our nation. Now, a straightforward way of addressing what they interpreted as racism would have been to answer the question straight out, proving that it was not Um A Change.org petition was started and circulated by Project Diversity Medicine, a kind of anti-do-no-harm, seeking to have his affiliation with the university as a professor emeritus severed. He asked a question. He didn't draw a conclusion. Because he's reached the end of his academic career, he's explained the vitriol directed toward him as being driven by the fact that his detractors know they can't hurt him. But for students trying to get into or thrive on medical school campuses, there's much more to lose. This is the, uh, the trend, the direction that the uh, profession is apparently going. Meanwhile, an Indiana police department sent out a warning to local residents to be on the lookout for a new deadly form of fentanyl. That could target children. It's called rainbow fentanyl. It's reported to look like candy. I've seen it and it does. And it could be mistaken for such, especially when in the presence of children. Now, I imagine or I imagine that once you taste it, if you didn't just swallow it whole, kids tend to chew candy. You probably spit it out because it would be very bitter. But nonetheless, uh, it's designed to attract children. Uh, Rainbow fentanyl can be sold in forms such as pills, powder, and blocks that resemble sidewalk chalk, the uh, police department said. Police warn that the brightly colored blocks could be used to attract younger and less assuming customers, especially children. Police also warn that sales of the drug in the city are usually conducted online. The warnings come as uh, just a few days after Customs and Border Protection officers in Arizona uncovered a smuggler plot to sneak thousands of rainbow-colored fentanyl pills into the United States from Mexico. The ingredients oftentimes come from China, uh, and they can be developed in Mexico. Well, according to Michael Humphreys, the port director for the... Nogales, Arizona port of entry into the United States, officers seized 625,000 pills in five separate inspections at the port, 12,000 of which were the rainbow-colored pills. Agents also found 34 pounds of methamphetamine, five pounds of marijuana in that inspection. Well, seizures of fentanyl saw a spike of nearly 200 percent at the southern border in July to over 2,100 pounds seized. The highest amount seized in at least four fiscal years, the highest total recorded in 2022 before the July spike occurred in April when 1300 pounds were seized. Well, the uptick in seizures comes as the Drug Enforcement Administration has uh, warned of a nationwide spike in fentanyl overdoses with a dangerous drug killing Americans at an unprecedented rate. Fentanyl was linked to 80,000 overdose deaths in the United States last year. 80,000, somebody's father, someone's mother, a sister, a cousin, a sibling, a grandson, a granddaughter. 80,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. last year alone. That accounts for nearly 75 percent of all drug overdoses in the country. It is a serious issue. And while the president made brief mention of fentanyl in his speech yesterday, which was purportedly designed to uh, to deal with uh, law enforcement, Uh, Not nearly enough has been done and no attention has been paid, at least by the administration and the authorities associated with the administration to address the issue um, on the southern border, where most of the fentanyl and other of these uh, similar drugs are coming into the country. Well, as you know, the president is uh, going to address the country this evening. Um, It is uh, supposed to uh, be about Uniting the, the country, but uh, by all accounts and generally the media gets access to an outline of what the president intends to say the the theme of the speech, the primetime speech will be Trumpism threatens democracy. And oh, by the way, I'm doing really good things. But that's coming up. So if you want to hear what the president has to say, and it's always in our best interest to hear what an individual has to say, as difficult as it might be to sit through. So that you have some idea of the direction that's being proposed. And as we're facing midterm elections to give us some insight into uh, party politics as well, as this will not be the speech of a statesman, it will be a political speech, although underwritten by U.S. taxpayer dollars. Again, the president speaking to the nation primetime tonight. We're going to take a, uh, what, 22 hour break, but we'll be back tomorrow. We'll take a look at the headline news, the lighter side of the news, and we'll share this week's Christian outlook right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening
1: to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.